0: It's good to be home. There's nothing like it. A Sunday night at Mount Juliet. After being away at college for a year, it, it's just nice to be home and come back to what you're used to. I'm excited that I had the opportunity to speak with you this evening. There's so much that's been going on. Um, we just got back from Ukraine last night, and it was a wonderful trip. I have to say that of the previous trips I've been on, it was by far the busiest trip, but without a doubt, it was the most successful. There are a lot of opportunities and possibilities to be had over there, and I feel as if a lot of the groundwork was laid for a lot of good to be accomplished, and I'm sure that you'll hear more about that in the days and weeks to come, and I ask that you continue to be prayerful for that. Tonight, you can go ahead and be turning to Luke 15. Luke 15 is where we'll spend our time this evening, and I want us to look at a text that we're all familiar with. Whether this is your first day in a church building or you've been here your whole life, you know the story of the prodigal son. To be honest with you, up until recently, I'd grown very tired of this story. It's a story that we hear so often, we see it portrayed, we read it, that I just got into the mindset of, I know, I know, what's next? Let's move on to something else. That is until I really sat down and decided to study this passage. After studying this passage, I can now say that I have a deeper appreciation and a deeper understanding for the prodigal son than I do for any other parable. The themes and the imagery that are portrayed in this parable are outstanding. Things I never even realized were there. And tonight I hope that I can direct our thoughts in a way to a new perspective, to look at it from a light that you may not have considered before. I want you to look at this sermon as yourself. How does this affect me? How can I apply it to my everyday life? But I also want you to put yourself in the place of a Pharisee. It's the first century and you are a religious leader. You're the best of the best. You spend your days in the temple teaching, praying, fasting. Everything is fueled by self-image. You're the ones who stand in the temple and pray to God, God, I thank you that I am not like these men, the sinners. That's kind of who you are. Everything is based on merit. You believe that you are in favor with God and your way into heaven by your good words. You follow the law. You follow the law so much so that you have created your own laws that you subject yourself to. You don't associate with anyone lesser than another scribe or Pharisee simply because they're not as good as you. So keep that thought and that mindset in the back of your mind this evening as we approach this story. And I'll tell you why. Let's look at the first three verses of Luke 15. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them. There were two groups of people that were following Jesus. There were the sinners, there were the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sick, the ones that society didn't care about, the lowlifes, the ones who didn't have a voice. They were following Jesus. They were hanging on to every word that he said. Because the message that he delivered gave them life. It gave them hope. It gave them something that they never had before. And they wanted to know every bit of it. This Jesus, this person who was bringing a new ministry, a new way of life, was truly the voice to these people. But there was another group. There were the scribes and the Pharisees. They too were following Jesus, hanging on to every word of this master storyteller. But their motive was entirely different. You see, Jesus, his ministry and the groundwork that he was laying was so different from that of what the Pharisees wanted. It was so different from anything. And they complained for the very reason because he was associating with the tax collectors and the sinners. Their mindset was such that if we can just find anything to accuse him, to convict him of something so we can get him out of our way and carry on with our agenda, then that's what we're going to do. They simply didn't like the man because he was reaching out to the very ones he came to save. But let's get into the parable now. In uh, Luke 15, beginning in verse 11, he says, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that fall to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. We're introduced to the three characters of this story. You have a father and his two sons. I want you to keep in mind that in this day and time, shame and honor are everything. Everything. Your family name, what you do, is all done to either shame yourself or to bring honor and glory to your name. With keeping that in mind, the younger son goes to his dad and basically says to him, Dad, I wish you were dead. I don't like you. I don't like this family. I don't like the work that we do. I'm ready to get out. Give me my inheritance. I'll be out of your way. This request was ridiculous. For a younger son to make this was unheard of. During that day and time, the younger son would have been entitled to one-third of his family's inheritance. And as we can pick up through clues in this story, we can tell that this is a very, very wealthy family. Not only does the son make this request, but the father grants it. He would have had to have sold a lot of his assets to give away all his money to this son who he knows is not going to be smart with it. He knows he's not going to invest and provide for himself, but rather blow it all on his lifestyle. But yet he submits to his request. In keeping with his shame and honor idea, during this day and time, it would have been customary for when a child did this, that the father would take them to the center of the town and publicly slap him across the face just to show that he brought the shame and they're giving the shame to him. And even extreme senses, families would have a funeral for the loved one who did that just to show people that they regarded them as dead, that they are no longer welcomed as a part of this family. So that just gives you an idea of how much shame and honor there was in this culture. But not the father. He didn't do that. He didn't discipline. He didn't rebuke. He simply granted his request. And that's the way God is with us. He's not holding us back, letting us, keeping us in the fold. He's not barring the door. He's not doing any of this stuff. It's our choice. Are we choosing to serve God? But if we want to go out, if we want to go away, then He lets us. And that's exactly the imagery that is portrayed. But what happens next? In 14, it says But when He had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and He began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. Sin plus life equals death. Sin is fun. I'm not going to lie to you. The way sin is portrayed and the way people make it out to be, living a lifestyle of sin is a great time, and it's made to look that way. And truth be told, at first, it is. You go out and you enjoy your living life how you want to, much like the prodigal. He had money, so that meant he would have had people following him. He could have gone to the most extravagant parties, had the beautiful women. Anything he wanted, it was his. He was on cloud nine. But then life hit. The fun ran out. There's no money. There's a famine. His his so-called friends were now gone. He was left with nothing. So what does he do? Essentially, he makes himself a slave to someone just so he can get by. And what does this man do? He sends him out to herd the swine. And for a Jewish man to be around, port to touch to eat it, that would have been very sinful. But yet he was willing to do it just because he was in such bad shape. So much so um, uh, that he made himself a slave. And he's out there, and I can just imagine him sitting along the side with the pids, up against the trough, being so hungry, being in so much want and so much need, that he just wants to eat the very slot that the pids have. It's a shame to think of the beauty he had when he was at his father having every blessing, everything he ever needed or wanted was right there, and he threw it all away. But that's not the whole story. It begins to get beautiful in verse 17. It it, In 17, it says, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. The light bulb moment, it goes off. A lot of stories in scripture, I have a hard time imagining what they would have looked like. But there's just something about this scene in The Prodigal Son that I can imagine vividly. I can picture him leaned up against a rock or the trough, thinking, what have I done? My father, his servants, the very ones who have to work for him, are so blessed that they have leftovers. And yet I sit here covered in filth and rags, wanting to eat the pig's slop. What have I done? What kind of shame have I caused my father who had blessed me and loved me so richly, but yet I left him? I left all that just so I could go fulfill my pleasure. You know, in James, it tells us that sin is our desire. And when our desire has come to life, then that in turn produces death. And this is what had happened with the prodigal son. But he says, you know what? I'm not going to do this. It's worth a shot to go back home, to see if my father will receive me. And I can picture him getting up and staggering down a long, dusty road, the sun shining high above his head. He's skinny. He's covered in rats. The stench is sticking to him. He's rehearsing his apology in his mind. Father, father, I've sinned. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Having a sense of wondering, is he going to accept me? Is he going to rebuke me? What What's going to happen? I don't know, but it's worth a shot. And he begins that long walk back home. Then, in verse 20, But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring, the best, bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they begin to be merry. It, even, it gets even more beautiful. As we talked about shame, the father is about to bear the shame for the son, of, for the son again. You see, in that day and time, his garment would have gone down to the ground, and he would have had to have lift his garment up so that he could run. It would have been shameful for him to show his legs, but yet he did it. It would have been shameful for him to run and greet his son, but he did it. It would have been shameful for his servants who would have had to have done the same thing with him, but they did it. I can imagine the father just standing there on the side, looking off into the horizon, taking a double take, wiping his face and saying, yes, that's my son. And that very instant he runs and greets him, the emotion he has of the joy that his son is coming home. The son on the other end is staggering back with his emotions and then they meet and there's the embrace. What a beautiful picture of the wandering son coming home and the loving father greeting him. There's no pretense. There's no contracts. There's no, do you know what kind of shame you've caused me? Do you know what kind of hurt you've brought to this family? There's none of that. The father says to his servants, quick, go get the very best robe we have. Go get shoes and a ring. Kill the fatted calf. We need to celebrate because my son, my youngest son, he was dead, but now he is back. He's home. If there was ever a time to celebrate, it's now. One thing I never realized before was the significance of the gifts, the robe. Each family would have had one extravagant robe, only to be worn at special events like that of the marriage of the firstborn son. It was not something that you brought out for a night on the town, and each family only had one. But there was no, well, let's get him cleaned up or anything. Right there in everything, he was clothed with the family robe. The ring, this would have been the family signet ring used as a signature or a seal on official documents and papers. One of the ultimate signs of being reinstated to the family and the father gives it to him. The sandals, only noblemen and their family would have had the privilege of wearing shoes and sandals and yet the father says quick, go bring him shoes. All of these signs that he has been reinstated back into the family. The fatted calf is interesting to note, especially later on as we compare it to the older son. The fatted calf, most families wouldn't have had one of those at their disposal. This family did. And they killed it for the younger son, a true means for celebration. This in itself is a beautiful parable. It seems as if this could end right here and everything would be fine. You have a wandering son who left his loving father with all the blessings he went out to Try to live life on his own, he goes out there and he realizes it's not what he wants. So he comes back home and the loving father just greets him. It's so beautiful, but that's not all. But let's take a moment and recap. You are a Pharisee. What are you thinking through all this? As a Pharisee, your head is about to explode. You are moving in your seat. You can't sit still because every aspect of this story is wrong. Not anything that's been done or said is right, and it is driving you mad. For the son to make the request to his father of his inheritance is unheard of. For the father to actually give it to him, that's something else. Well, the lifestyle that he lived, well, we all know that's wrong, and it seems as if living with a swine was acceptable punishment. But then for the younger son to think that he could even go back home and try to live with his father again? I don't think so. But then for the father to accept him, that shatters every conceivable notion that the Pharisees had. What is wrong with this story? But finally, someone is going to come into play who represents the Pharisees. If you remember at the beginning, we talked about how every twist and turn of this parable is going to end up directing it back to the pharisees and it's going to do that through the older brother but where has he been don't you think if he was a vital part of this family that he would have been there when his brother was leaving home to try to talk sense into him and say brother what are you doing you don't realize how blessed we are our father gives us everything we ever need or wanted you don't want to do this look at the shame and hurt it's going to cause him Or don't you think that when the brother returned home, the father, the very first thing you would say is quick. Go tell my other son the good news that his brother has returned. But he's nowhere to be found. Let's see why. In 25 it says, now his older son was in the field and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. So he called uh, one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. You see, the older son was just as lost as his younger brother. And the father knew it. Even though he had been at home and it had appeared to be righteous his whole life, and everyone in the community thought so, the father knew what was on the inside. He knew his heart. He knew that if he had went and called his older brother, that it would put a damper on the celebration. In this day and time, it would have been the older son's responsibility to plan parties and events such as this. And I can imagine the shock on his face of coming home and seeing a celebration, but uh, it's a celebration. Why wouldn't you be excited? And then to find out that your brother, your lost brother is back, why wouldn't you be full of joy and rush in and greet your family at the celebration? But he doesn't do that. Just the way the Pharisees in the beginning of this story are not celebrating when the sinners repent. The sinners, the tax collectors, the hypocrites, the hookers, all those people who Jesus was out to reach, he did and they were repenting and that caused joy in heaven. But the Pharisees, the religious ones, the one who appeared to be right to everyone else, they were so lost that they refused to partake of the joy of the Father. Sin presents itself in two forms. You have the older brother who had hatred, resentment, ill will, pride, selfishness. And then the younger son who lived out his sin through his prodigal lifestyle. Either way, sin is sin and both chose to live them out. But it's interesting to note in 28, it says, but he was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. If you look at the two parables prior to this in Luke 15, you see that the celebrations are thrown not for the item that was found, but for the one who found it. As the shepherd finds his sheep or as the woman finds her money, they throw a celebration because of their joy. Just as the father in this case throws a celebration for the joy he has over his lost son. And the pride and selfishness of the older brother "'brings the father away from his own celebration. "'And when he has brought him away, he demands answers. "'He wants to know why all this has happened. "'His true character is about to be revealed. "'In um, 29, he says, "'Lo, these many years I've been serving you. "'I never transgressed your commandment at any time, "'and yet you never gave me a young goat "'that I might make merry with my friends.'" But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. Hey, Pop, listen up, because you have some explaining to do. How is it that I, your son, has stayed here? I've worked for you every day for years. Anything you said do, I do it. And what do I get? Nothing. You don't even give me a goat. But when your son, notice it's not my brother, but rather when this son of yours has come home, who's thrown away your money with uh, prostitutes, you kill the fatted calf for him? How dare you? Explain yourself. And that's exactly the way the Pharisees were. Every twist and turn, the story was going back to the Pharisees in hopes of the realization that they could come and join the celebration as well. But compare the homecoming of the older brother to that of the younger brother. When you see the younger brother come home to his father and they greet on the long road, it's, Father, I've sinned. You don't have to take me back to the family. Just make me a servant so I can live. The humility and sincerity that's there in his repentance. But then you have the older brother who says, Look, I've served you, I've never transgressed you, and you haven't given me anything. And that's the difference between the Pharisees and a repentant sinner. The repentant sinners, they don't have to be reinstated back to their fullness. They just simply want to come home. They realize what they've done and they're sorry for it. And all they want is to be welcomed back again. But the Pharisees were so clouded in their mind and their thinking that they refused to partake of the joy with those who had come home. In Matthew 23 and 27 Jesus describes the Pharisees where he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus is saying, I know who you are, I know what's inside. Yes, you may be in the temple every day, you may appear righteous, you may subject yourself to the law, but you're no different than a tomb. A tomb that may be decorated and appear beautiful on the outside, but what's on the inside? On the inside is death, bones, uncleanness, all those things that aren't good. And that's exactly how Jesus related it to the Pharisees, by saying, why won't you change? And then we see in the last two verses of Luke 15, we see the father's response to the older brother. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. I can imagine the father in just a pleading, but yet almost a perplexed tone saying, Son, don't you get it? Why don't you understand? Your brother was dead. He was gone. He was lost. We thought he would never be back. But here he is. He's alive. He's going to be well. He's part of the family again. If there was ever a time to celebrate, it's now. But yet you, you've been with me forever. You know how blessed you are. If you want a goat, you can have a goat. That's not what it's about. It's about the fact and the celebration of joy that your brother has come home. And Why? Why won't you open your eyes and realize this? But the father, his pleading is with no success. The Pharisees, they don't change. The parable ends with almost a sense of wondering what happens. It doesn't say that he goes in and joins them at the feast. It doesn't say that he runs off or that he demands his inheritance. But sadly, we know that in just a few short months, the Pharisees were the very ones shouting, crucify, crucify. The pleadings went unheard. With the story of the prodigal son, there's so much imagery there. You can fall into many different aspects of the spectrum. There are those who are like the younger brother. There are those who live in blatant sin, and they really, for a time period, don't care. That is, until they hit rock bottom, when they realize what they've done, when they realize the pain that their sin has caused. And then they come home, and it's such a beautiful sight to see. Then there are those who are like the older brother. They may appear to have everything in order, their life straight, and there may not appear to be anything wrong with them. But inside, they know who they are. They know what they're made of. They know that it's just hatred and ill will. And they refuse to go to the celebration that is being held. It's interesting from the standpoint of the older brother that if you stand outside the celebration, you have to face the fact that you exclude yourself from the celebration altogether. The Pharisees thought they were righteous. They thought they were whole. They thought everything they they were doing was what it needed to be. They were following the law to a T, but it's not right. They refused to go to the celebration for others. They refused to rejoice over the ones who were saved. And by doing this, they entirely excluded themselves from the celebration. You see, with a prodigal son, there's times that it almost leaves you speechless. You can choose to talk about so many different aspects of it that you just don't know where to begin. You don't know what words to use to describe it. But it's a beautiful story. To think of the Father's love and the forgiveness and the joy of repentance that there is to know that there's no sin committed, no word spoken, no action done, that the Father's love can't forgive. There's nothing too deep or too wrong or powerful. We haven't gone down a road too long that the Father can't bring us back, that he can't have a celebration for us when we return home. And that is the beauty and the love of the God that we have a privilege to serve. If you find yourself in the position of the younger brother. Lost in sin, at rock bottom, ready to come home. Why don't you? Maybe you find yourself in the position of the older brother. You're lost in sin, but yet everything appears okay. Why not change and get everything right? By despising the Father's grace, we condemn ourselves. But the beauty of the prodigal son is that there is always a God ready to have a celebration. There's no pretense, there's no contract, term, or condition of saying, well, prove to me you're faithful. Live for me for one or two years, then we'll talk. When someone returns, there's no, do you know what kind of shame you cause me? There's no pain, there's no hurt. But what do we have? We have the image of a God running to greet us, to bear the shame with open arms, to wrap his arms around us and to bring us back into the family of God. This evening, whether you find yourself lost and needing to repent, we ask that you do that this evening. Or if you've yet to become a child of God, don't leave here with your life, not right with him. There's a celebration. The only question is, are you going to be a part of it? If we can help you in any way, come as we stand, as we sing.